Welcome to the Village ZM. We are a youth-led podcast that focuses on the people of Zambia and how to navigate the problems we face as a country in order to create development and progress for our great nation. Follow us at the Village ZM on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our podcast is available on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and various other podcast platforms. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Village ZM. On today's episode, we are going to be taking a look into education in Zambia. I'm going to be discussing it with Sui. Hey, Sui, how are you doing? Hey, what's good? What's good? I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to having this conversation. We are fortunate enough to be joined with a very special guest, who is Dr. Mwansa. Dr. Mwansa, good evening. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. I hope you are well too. Thank you so much. We're so happy to have you here on the show today. But before we get into discussing the topic of the day, would you please give us a brief introduction of yourself? Okay, thank you so much. And uh, I'm glad to be here. My name's uh, Mwansa Mukarula Kalumbi, and I hold a PhD in education, education policy from the University of South Africa. And currently, I'm lecturing at the University of Zambia, where I have been since 2010 under the Department of Education Administration and Policy Studies. My focal areas and the department border on educational planning and educational policy. And in uh, spearheading or managing those courses, I tend to look at some of the cut crossing issues in education. Like you rightly know that management of the education system is anchored on planning and relevant policies on the ground. So that's what I've been doing at the University of Zambia. And I've been doing that for the past 12 years. It's been an honor to have graduated I've seen so many student graduates. That has been what I've been doing at the University of Zambia. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. That is truly amazing. Before we do go on, could you please help me understand what exactly you mean by educational policy? Educational policy is simply guidelines or statements which are legally backed, which tend to tell us exactly how we are supposed to do things and conduct ourselves within the education sector. You realize that managing the education sector is multi-involving task. There is the administration, there is the core business, which is the teaching and learning. With that in place, so many activities are undertaken. And those little activities which we undertake in the education sector are legally backed through the policies which are formulated. So from a layman's perspective, when we say policy making, it's simply 
the guidelines and statements which guide practice. Thank you so much for that definition. It truly does make things much easier. Uh, before we go deeper into it, Sui, I'd like to know, what does education mean to you? I guess from my perspective, it's it's really about nurturing and imparting various forms of knowledge into the growing minds of our society. That's how I put it in, in a short space. I think I'm not so sure how much emphasis is put, but I think even extracurricular education fits into that framework. So it's really just about all these aspects of young growth and, and stuff like that. That's, that's how I'd put it uh, briefly. Thank you for that. I really do like the definition that you have given, and it, it does fall in line with a number of things that I do believe that education should be. Dr. Monson, just for clarification, is the depiction that Sui gave an accurate depiction, or is there something that is missing from it? Well, in simple terms, we would want to understand education as a process through which we nurture growth in our society, a process through which we impart knowledge and skills in our young generation in order for us to make them responsible citizens. And at this point, one thing we should note is that education is looked at from three perspectives. There's the formal education, where you have a structured uh, outlay, where there is structures for grades, where somebody has got to ascend through the system. There's what we call non-formal education. Some things we learn, we meet them along the way through human interaction in our society, and there's what we call informal education. So what I'm simply trying to say is that there are three types of education. There's education you learn from the formal structures. There's education you learn in semi-structured settings, like training programs. Sometimes when you see pregnant women go to the clinic, they tend to have classes for them where they teach them about the changes they'll notice with pregnancy. I would call that an informal kind of uh, setting. Then there's the non-formal. There's a kind of learning we learn from interaction as human beings, we are social beings. So there are what we would call unspoken rules. Some things will never be taught from a classroom, but you learn about them through human interaction. Thank you. Thank you so much for that explanation. It does really put a lot of things into perspective. So it did raise a few questions and that I'm hoping you can help clarify for me. Do these three types of education, the formal, non-formal, and informal, have any influence or effect on each other, or are they completely independent systems? They are very, very independent. You realize when we look at the formal system, this is uh, the Western type of education as we know it. When you start from early childhood education, you go through primary, secondary, and tertiary level. There is a detailed curriculum which is going to guide all the activities. There is a detailed timetable which is going to tell you exactly what you're going to do. And there's all these processes which take place. And in the end, through that teaching and learning processes, one will be examined. And after being examined, 
it's either you pass or you fail. The system has got a way of dealing with those who fail. They certify you at the end. When you look at uh, an informal kind of setting, like I gave an example, you see pregnant women go to the hospital and there are certain lessons which are conducted. The whole setting has got no formality to it. You won't even know who's going to come and teach you about these things. And there is no set out expectation as to how you should conduct yourself. It's merely a process through which you have to undergo. You need certain information because mothering a child or carrying a child comes with so much, so many changes. So that is totally independent. Formal education is independent from non-formal, from informal type of education. But one thing we should note is that the kind of education you tend to get from the formal system tends to give you an upper hand as to how you'd be able to understand or evaluate what you learn in the informal or informal settings, or rather in the non-formal and informal settings. Because through the formal setting, you are helped to sharpen your understanding and your thinking perception is sharpened. Thank you so much for that. So diving into the formal education, would you happen to know what kind of effect Zambia being a former British colony has on our current education system or education policies? It is important for us to understand where we're coming from. Initially, we had what we were calling traditional education. And this traditional education was so embedded in our ways of living. And we tend to see some of these tenets in the way we handle traditional communities in our current societies. So it was a kind of education where we would uh, teach our young ones through observation. And uh, when they got to maturity stage, that's the time we would separate the girls and the boys and they would be taught certain things and the girls would be made to hang around with their mothers and grandmothers and equally the boys would go hunting with their fathers and grandfathers. So with the coming of Western education through the missionaries, in the 1800s, we had uh, the introduction of Western education. And uh, at that time, the responsibility of managing Northern Rhodesia was delegated to the British South African Company, which was headed, of course, by C.C. Rhodes. And the major focus with this company was not necessarily to help expose traditional societies to Western education or try to Westernize them. Their major focus was on the minerals which they had discovered. You see, this company was initially based in South Africa and they discovered gold. So C.C. Rhodes thought this gold belt, which ran from South Africa, actually would go through Africa up to the Northern Cape. 
So that's how they were able to set up offices in then northern Rhodesia. So they did very little into developing education. And because of that gap, you find that in 1924, Zambia became officially a British protectorate. We were now officially colonized by the British. And in so doing, from 1924, that is the time we would say Zambia's educational system was born. The current educational structure, the Ministry of Education as we know it, was born at that time. Because under the British government, with the colonial structure in place, we even had an office which was managing education. So in so doing, this office was able to bring together all the missionaries who had set up village structures, which they were calling schools. And their major focus was on uh, imparting the basic skills, which included reading and, of course, numeracy. So the British office under the headship of Latham saw Zambia's educational system or rather office structure, administrative structure being set up. Because now what we saw was instead of all these missionaries operating in isolation, they were now being managed through an office. So you find that they now started coming up with different policies which would help come up with a formidable education administrative office. Now they came up with policies with regards to teacher training. They came up with a curriculum. They came up with structures, which they would call teacher training centers. And from 1924 up until 1964, the undertakings of the colonial office impacted greatly on the kind of education that we hoped to develop from 1964 until debt. So in short, answering your question, the colonial legacy saw to a very large extent shaped the kind of education, the administrative structure that we have in our education system. Thank you so much for that. Honestly, it really is an eye-opener. I had no idea that the policies regarding education came from the days of the British South African company. And it does sort of raise a few questions to me, though, because I am now trying to wonder whether or not the same systems and policies are still in effect now. Mainly it's because I just wonder the efficacy of them. And I'm wondering what was done to set policies over the years by the different president administrations that we have had point of correction, not the BSA company. The BSA company was here first, but they did very little for education. The British government itself took over in 1924 because they realized that the BSA company was focusing on the mineral exploration. So getting back to your question, uh, from 1924, the setting up of the educational structure was the responsibility of the British government. And their focus, when you come to the administrative structure, you find that their focus was on the major issues which tend to 
inspire the management of education. They were able to set up a unit for teacher education, curriculum development, the teaching and learning. Who should be able to teach at what level and what kind of training should they get? And you find that this kind of structure trickled down even at uh, independence. And if you look at the way we were managing our education system, we took over. But what we did is we continued with some of the good tenets of the management of education that the British colonial government had adopted and got rid of the bad elements of educational management. For example, from 1924, upon the establishment of colonial education office, one thing that was noted was that there were two types of schools. There was a racial kind of segregation. There were schools for the whites and there were schools for the blacks. And one thing you should notice that the focus of the colonial government was to give quality education to the whites, whereas there were limited educational facilities for the blacks. Why do I say limited? What the colonial government wanted to focus on was lower levels of education in terms of providing primary education and vocational skills, vocational training for the Africans. Secondary education and university was a preserve of the white population. So even at independence, one thing that was noted was that the education system was underdeveloped in terms of educational facilities. At independence, we inherited a biracial kind of system. So the task of the new unique government was to undertake and make decisions which would scrap off that racial approach, which would mean them focusing on these other levels of education. For example, secondary education, which was underdeveloped as well as university education. By the time we became independent, there was no university in existence. So at independence, you find that the government had the responsibility of expanding educational facilities, firstly. Secondly, they needed to train Zambians into becoming teachers because what happened at independence, most of those trained teachers who were mostly British and Indians, they left at independence. And why did they leave? Because of change of policies. Remember, under the colonial office, we had two pathways. There was one for the whites and there was one for the Africans. So if you were teaching in a school for the whites, definitely your conditions were better. Your salaries, your working conditions were far much better as one who was working in an African school. So after independence, the UNIPE government scrapped off all that. So all those British and Indian teachers who had come to teach in now Zambia, they left, meaning there was a gap. The schools were made. There was no longer an issue of saying Kablonga Girls is a school for the whites. 
and uh, Kamwala Secondary School is a school for colors and Indians. All that was scrapped off. Conditions were equalized across. There was nothing like you're working in a white-oriented school and an African school. So the responsibility was left on the shoulders of the UNIP government. They needed to establish teacher training institutions, make sure they train as much teachers as they could. They needed to establish a university. So already what we are seeing from just from the initial start, when Zambia became independent, there was need to undertake a quantitative expansion. There was need for investment in our education system in order to have the needed educational facilities, which would drive the Zambianization process. So in driving that uh, Zambianization process, you find that much of the decisions which were made by the UNIP government were highly propelled by the happenings under the colonial government. They needed Africans who would get a good secondary education, who would go to university, and they needed to stop this tendency of sending people to university in other countries. In short, the UNIP government had to establish a university. So if you look at the legacy left, some of the major issues which could have been tackled by the colonial government were not and deliberately not attended to, like the building of many secondary schools. And what they wanted was to provide basic education to the Africans so that they could manage to manipulate them and manage them. And slowly in the 1940s, due to pressure from the Africans, this time we had seen a small educated African population of the Kaundas, Harry Mwangankumbula, Simon Mwansakapwepo. They started propagating for higher education, secondary education. And that's what the colonial masters didn't want. But in the end, they were forced to start setting up secondary schools. But of course, as we speak at independence, there was no university. So yes, indeed, the colonial legacy tended to shape the decisions we made in our education system. And some of those decisions we made right after independence have come back to hold us. Why do I say so? Because under the UNIP government, their focus was on quantitative expansion with the knowledge that most of the schools which they had inherited from the colonial masters, those schools which were for the whites, the quality was still good. So in order to sustain and make sure that this quality was across all the schools, they made efforts to establish their university and they could still employ people who were educated. And you realize that the UNIP government was driven by the socialist philosophy, which we were calling humanism. And this directly impacted on how we were managing education. With humanism in place, it meant the sole provider of education was the government. And in the initial years, they did so well in investing in education. 
especially in the 80s, in the 1960s, 1970s, there was dramatic investment and quantitative expansion. In 1966, they were able to set up a university. They were able to set up Nkuruma Teachers Training College. They were able to actually establish teacher training colleges across the provinces. So in the 1960s, in the 1970s, there was a lot of investment in widening access for all the Zambians in order to realize their dream for Zambianization. But take note that in the 1980s, under the UNIP government, this changed. And why was it so? We had started experiencing economic woes. The government as a sole provider of education was now unable to fund education. Wow. Thank you so much for that. We have spoken a lot about what the policies were intended for and what exactly that they did do in the initial stages of our growth as a country. I'd like to know if, in your opinion, our policies on education are geared towards academic excellence I would want to say yes in word, because if you look at our current policy, the main mission statement still embraces these values, but of course, in a democratic space. We still want to, as a government, as a minister of education, they still aim to guide and provide education to all Zambians through provision of quality education, which is going to be seen through the knowledge and skills people are able to attain, and of course, through performance and moral uprightness in a democratic space. Thank you so much for that. A number of people have been talking about teacher education. This is because teachers are the people who are interested in teaching the younger generation what they need to learn. So in your opinion, what exactly do you think of the teacher education? Is it something that is of a very high standard? You find that since 2013, our teacher training has made a lot of changes. Why take note of 2013? 2013, Zambia adopted a new curriculum framework. And this framework has got a two-pathway direction, which is academic and vocational. And that comes with the realization that not everybody is gifted the same way. Some people are academically sound and others are skilled oriented, vocational skills. So with that in mind, you find that with regards to teacher training, We've had to embrace certain areas of teacher education which were not there before. We have new subject areas in order to respond to the needs of the Zambian population. Remember, at Independence and all these years, we've had a white-collar job-oriented kind of curriculum where it's just imparting knowledge, and from there, people are inclined to think they just have to be employed. 
But that hasn't helped the Zambian society, especially when our economy became so bad, leading to a tight job market. And you find that certain people who fail, it's not that they are dull. It's just that they're not academically sound. So with the new curriculum framework, we've been able to alter or make changes to the way we are training teachers. We are becoming more practical. And this has trickled down to the classroom. We now have new subject areas like ICT. This is something that we never had. We are encouraging practical subjects like home economics. They are learning all these skill-oriented subjects at a very tender age. And the assumption behind that approach is that those who are not academically sound can be able, even if they drop off the education system, they should be able to be responsible citizens. They should be able to set up businesses like brick making, like restaurants. They should be able to become tellers who are able to make clothes. So what I'm trying to say is that in order to respond to the needs of our Zambian society, we've had to make a lot of changes to teacher training. We are trying to deal with practical skills as well as academically sound students in our system. Can we move away from the white collar oriented kind of education? So I would say the Ministry of Education has taken time to respond to educational needs of the Zambians in that manner. They've tried to diversify the curriculum. So you've spoken about the introduction of new subjects to the school curriculum. I'm referring to home economics as well as ICT, and I'm guessing there are a few others that have also been introduced. So I'd like to find out if you happen to know anything about the infrastructure needed for those classes. Is the infrastructure available or is it something that is still under development? If we have to comfortably appreciate the changes that we've come up with, infrastructure is an important facet of education and, of course, enhancing quality in an education system. I'll give you an example of ICT. Of course, for children to learn ICT, there is need it to mean each and every school will need to have what we are going to call a computer lab where children can go and learn the practical use of a computer. If you are going to talk about home economics, there is need to have a specialized classroom. But one thing that we note, this call for these facilities to be set up in schools has been a long time coming. And partly this has been due to law investments in education. You would want to marry it with a lack of priorities. One thing that we've noted is that these changes, this fusing in of uh, different subject areas has not been coupled with the necessary infrastructure needed to teach these skills in schools. But of course, the Ministry of Education has been making efforts. As at now, as we stand, the Ministry has noted that deficit and they've got very ambitious plans where they hope to build more schools and expand those existing schools with more classrooms. As we are speaking right now, the ministry is in the process of 
completing over a hundred schools across Zambia. So yes, in terms of infrastructure, we've been moving at a very slow pace. And partly the major reason behind that is that there's been very low investment in education and we haven't done so well when it comes to national budgetary allocation. So we find ourselves in a situation where 90% of the money allocated to education is spent on personal emoluments, meaning the ministry remains with only about 5 to 10% of the budget, which they have to invest in infrastructure development. So already we can see why we are still limping in terms of infrastructure. Thank you. So Dr. Monsa, we'd like to get your perspective on a couple of things. Uh, the first one is uh, the classroom contact in all the sectors of education, of former education to be specific. Could you give us your perspective on pupil-teacher ratios and also just the general approach that our education system has towards educating students in our national examination system? So thank you so much, Zoe. In short, you're trying to look at issues of quality in our education system. And uh, when we talk about issues of pupil-teacher ratio and uh, contact hours, definitely we are trying to dwell on uh, quality issues in our education system. And these are some of the important indicators which will give you an idea as to how an education system is trading. And so... Responding to that, when it comes to pupil-teacher ratio, we've been limping. You find that most of the classes in public schools are full to capacity. You find that one teacher has to handle over 50 children. If it's at early childhood level, you'd find 70 children in a classroom. So the pupil-teacher ratio has been so high such that it makes it difficult for a teacher to operate effectively. Because at primary school level, if you have to teach all the subject areas, no teacher would effectively manage to mark over 200 books. For example, if they're 15 in a class, you give them mathematics, you have to mark. You have to give them feedback. You give them English, you have to mark. So already the pupil-teacher ratio has been too high. And we've also had a deficit in the teachers needed in the classroom. That's why you've seen that one of their focal areas as of now, as we speak, the government has made pronouncements of employing over 30,000 teachers. If those teachers are employed, if those schools which are half finished are finished and become fully operational, we are going to be looking at the whole different education system where we are going to have a healthy pupil-teacher ratio. What are we talking about? Of course, when we look at children, children require so much attention. If you compare it with private schools, most of these private schools in Zambia, if you go to a nursery, you find that in a class, you find there are two teachers, 200 children. And if you walk into a private school, you find that there's a healthy pupil teacher ratio where secondary, maybe a class, the maximum number would be 35. 
So in public schools, there's still a lot of room to reduce the pupil-teacher ratio by, of course, employing more teachers and building more classrooms. Because without that, we'll be simply trading off the quality and enhancing quantitative expansion. You see, if we leave the infrastructure as it is, their population doesn't stop growing. It will mean in the end, what we are going to see is a reduction of the contact hours, which you've rightly talked about. In a healthy primary school, in a healthy secondary school, you find that the contact hours per day, in most of these uh, developed countries, you find that children will come in at eight, they'll knock off at 15 or 3.30 p.m. So they spend an average, of course, including break and lunch, they'll spend an average of uh, six to seven hours having contact with the teachers. In Zambia, the average is about five hours. And this happens in schools where they don't have double sessions. What do I mean? This happens in schools where they don't have two groups of children. Some who come in the morning, they come at seven, they knock off at 12. And at 13 hours, another group of children will come in and they'll knock off at 16 or 17. So usually the contact hours is reduced between four to five. And in the advent of COVID-19, the contact hours has reduced so much. We are now talking about two and a half hours to three hours. So already those are indicators to you or me that the quality of education is being compromised. And these are some of the important indicators which tend to drive a quality-oriented education system. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for your insights, Dr. Monza. We're getting close to wrapping up in the interest of your time and ours. We just have one last question, um, and perhaps you could also give us your final thoughts on our education system. But is grade 7, grade 9, and grade 12 education sufficient for someone to be a productive member of our society? So, yeah, we just want to get your thoughts. Well, well, one thing I can tell you is um, the whole solution when it comes to an education system, if an education system is to operate as a panacea to societal problems or to driving the development agenda of a country, everything lies in the quality. And quality is something that is driven by investment. With investment, you're going to have the necessary inputs. You're going to have the necessary teaching, learning materials. You have trained teachers. You have infrastructure as in well-built classrooms. That is the mix you need for a healthy teaching and learning process. Even if somebody drops off at grade seven, I'll give you an example of the Asian tigers. Countries recall Singapore, Thailand. Singapore is one of the richest countries. The only thing that they did, we actually have success stories. These countries highly invested in basic education, which is from grade one to grade nine. And much of the people who started running what we are calling small scale businesses, where people 
who had gotten a basic education. Because no matter how efficient an education system is, the possibility of everybody getting to the apex, getting to grade 12 in our case, it just doesn't happen. Some of them will drop off. But if an education system is able to provide them quality education, believe me, these people will become productive in their so and put in measures. Right now we have a ministry of small-scale businesses. That is what we need to drive an economy. These people who drop off, these people who are unable to advance to higher levels of academic achievement, they'll be able to set up businesses. If somebody has a passion for building, you don't find a university graduate building a house. He'll merely come up with a plan and be a guide. And the ones who are going to be doing this are these people with vocational skills. So can we have people who've got these vocational skills who drop off at grade seven? If they're able to get through, sharpen their love for brick laying, they'll be able to set up companies and start making bricks. They'll be able to set up small companies and start building houses. So what I'm trying to say is if our Levels of education, as you've rightly put them, primary, secondary, if they have to be relevant, people who drop off, people who get to these levels, if they have to be relevant, it is important that we create an enabling environment. Because if somebody drops off at grade seven and there is nothing, no systems, no structures in a society to assimilate them, it becomes problematic. But this is something that the Zambian government realized and came up with a two-pathway curriculum. Can we cater for the vocational skills and the academic? And in so saying, the aspect of having trade schools and vocational education comes in very relevant. It's very relevant because it will be assimilating those students who are not academically sound, but they have a passion for a particular skill, for a particular vocational skill. Thank you. In my concluding remarks, what I would say is that uh, Zambia's educational development has not been coupled with the necessary infrastructure development, with the necessary teacher training recruitment, and our population has been growing. And due to low budgetary allocation to our education sector, we've seen these important aspects like infrastructure development, teacher recruitment being done at a very low pace. And as at now, where we stand, I think some of the developments we've seen in the past five months, if the government still lives up to its uh, pronouncement of recruiting 30,000 teachers and uh, completing the existing schools, which uh, were left halfway done, and of course, expanding the existing infrastructure, I think we are going to see how we are going to have a balance between quality and quantitative expansion. And in so saying, we are going to see quality in our education system. And it's only through quality education 
that we can offload the necessary manpower which will be able to drive Zambia's developmental agenda. Quality is an important facet and we need to give it time. We, we will sit back and see how the new government will realize some of these uh, loopholes or weaknesses which have been noted in our education system. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having this conversation with us, uh, Dr. Monsa. We appreciate your insights and we appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak with us. It, it means a lot to us and hopefully our audience learns a lot from you. And, uh, and yeah, we look forward to having more conversations with you in, in the future. So thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us in this conversation. Thank you. Uh, yeah, with that being said, tweet us your thoughts and use the hashtag TheVillaZetup. This is the end of the episode. Uh, thank you so much for listening and hopefully you tune in to our next episode. Thank you so much for listening to us. We are the ZM podcast and we hope to see you again soon. Please keep up to date with our latest content by following us on our social media platforms which are all at the Village ZM. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.